This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Covaris, Ranchford Eye Center, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. On this beautiful Saturday, thank you for joining us, and hopefully all of you will get a chance to get outside and enjoy this beautiful weather while we have it, uh, whether it be doing some fitness activity or enjoying friends, barbecuing, um, all the fun things that we look forward to doing in summer, and it looks like we're going to have a good weekend to do that. Here at Healthy Rounds, today my guest in the studio will be Dr. Caleb Peck. Dr. Peck has been a guest before. He's a clinical neuropsychologist. And the reason we brought him back was because in a past show, uh, one of our listeners called in, uh, I believe his name was Nicholas, uh, called in and said, you know, did you ever think of doing a show on anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder, especially how it pertains to veterans? And um, I thought about it and contacted Dr. Peck. So we're going to be talking a lot about anxiety because we hear the word anxiety a lot, but I don't know that we know everything it means because there are so many different forms of anxiety and how to approach anxiety, how to get over that hump, that barrier. So we're going to be chatting with uh, Dr. Peck today uh, and, and to make sure if people think they have it, you know, what are the symptoms? Uh, do they really have it? And are they candidates for treatment? So we're going to chat a lot about that today. And our phone numbers here are 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. And we'll be taking phone calls throughout the program. This day in medicine, July 6th, 1844, Dr. Camilo Golgi was born. Now, Dr. Golgi was born in Italy. He is an Italian cytologist and a pathologist. And most of his work back then was about the architecture of the nervous system. Um, he did so much. In, he actually, there's a stain name. There's so many things named Golgi. There's the Golgi apparatus, which is part of a cell. There's the Golgi tendon organ which is when you tap on your knee and get a reflex, um, you're tapping over a specific structure named after the Dr. Golgi. And he invented a type of stain that's used on cells. He actually won the Nobel Prize in 1906. So we remember Dr. Camilo Golgi, um, and uh, his today is his birthday. One study that just came out that caught my attention was about sauna bathing. Now, we hear about sauna bathing all the time, but in Finland, it, it's part of the culture. So they actually did a study in Finland where they looked at 1,600 people and split them up, uh, men and women, between people who participated in sauna bathing either one session a week or four to seven sessions a week. And what they wanted to do was really look at, does this impact the risk of medical problems, specifically stroke? And what they felt was those people who had frequent sessions in the sauna had lower risk of stroke. 
So it was significant from that standpoint. Now, the problem with the study was there's a lot of what we call confounding data. So do you adjust for the temperature of the sauna, how long they're in the sauna? So I think it was really a question is, is being in a sauna healthy? And I think the answer is yes, when it's done properly. And you always see those things. You have to make sure you're properly hydrated. If you are diabetic, be very careful about subjecting yourself to that. But in general, uh, sauna bathing on a regular basis appears to be a healthy practice. And uh, certainly they've been doing it for many years in Finland. Another thing uh, that came up was about coffee drinking. Now, there was a study that just came out that said the more coffee you drink, the longer you live. Basically, people who drank coffee had longer mortality. Uh, that's crazy in the sense that there are so many problems with that study when we look at it. For example, genetics. They did do DNA studies with this study. But what they didn't really look at is how you metabolize caffeine. Caffeine is the active ingredient in coffee. So if you're somebody who rapidly metabolizes it, you know, how does that impact your longevity? Because it's cleared out of your body in such a short period of time. It also didn't discriminate between regular, um, the more bold coffees or decaffeinated coffee. So uh, there are a lot of things out there that don't necessarily pertain to your longevity. I guess what I'm saying is uh, this is right there with the red wine study, right? Remember that a glass of red wine, you'll live longer. No one knows. There are too many factors here. So don't start changing your whole lifestyle and going out and making sure you get to Starbucks twice a day because you think you're going to live longer. Uh, so you have to really look at these studies. And just because you see it on GMA or CBS does not necessarily mean it's that accurate. There are problems, and those are some of the, some of the things we like to look at here. One of the things we're going to be talking about today is social anxiety disorder. They, I didn't realize that it affects 12% of all adults. And social anxiety disorder is really an intense fear of being judged uh, or evaluated negatively by other people. And a study was just done where they took people who had social anxiety disorder and got them involved in a program of uh, comedy improvisation. Now, that must be so hard for someone who has that level of anxiety. Uh, but they found that it, it was a, an accepted therapy. So we want to talk a little bit about that with Dr. Peck when he's here in the studio about these different types of exercises that may help people get out of their shell, as we would normally say. One other article I did want to talk about today was one about vagal nerve stimulation. Uh, I read it in a, a newsletter, the bottom line uh, newsletter. And it there are people out there promoting vagal nerve stimulation as the latest panacea. Now, vagal the vagal nerve, vagus nerve is a cranial nerve. And it extends, it works at the heart level, works at the GI level, and it goes to the brain and brainstem. The thing is this, there are ways of stimulating that nerve. One of the first things we did was try to use that for epilepsy. 
And there are two ways of doing it. You could do it externally or through an implantable device. Uh, when they tried using it for epilepsy, it worked in some people, still works in some people, but it doesn't work for everybody, and it is an invasive procedure to implant that. But now there are people out there saying that it will work for anxiety. It will work for migraine. It will work for Parkinson's disease. And there isn't really good data to support that. So it's one of those things that you really have to weigh out the risk and potential benefit. With respect to migraine headaches, we know that external stimulation, for example, of the occipital nerve in the back of the head, and there's some studies now showing supraorbital stimulation. It's a little headpiece you can wear that will stimulate the supraorbital nerve over the eyes, uh, and in doing so, possibly abort a migraine or avoid migraine. But again, it doesn't work for everybody. It works for some people, and, and to those people, have at it. But it's not something we're going to say, hey, everybody needs to get a vagal nerve stimulator if you want to solve your anxiety problems or have a potential cure for Parkinson's disease. And that's what we do on this show. This is what I like to do is look at these studies and try to clarify and kind of get through them for all of our listeners and obviously take questions. We're going to take a short break. The phone number's here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. In the next segment, we're going to be joined by my guest, Dr. Caleb Peck, clinical neuropsychologist at the Claris Health Alliance. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Those are the sounds of Steely Dan, who will be at the Mohegan Sun uh, tomorrow. Steely Dan will be at the Mohegan Sun Arena. What a great arena and actually a great shows. They just had U2 there uh, this week, uh, Steely Dan tomorrow, and uh, more coming up this week. So if you get a chance, get over to the Mohegan Sun and enjoy all the festivities going on um, at the Mohegan Sun. Uh, next up, my guest today is Dr. Caleb Peck. Dr. Peck is a clinical neuropsychologist at Claris Health Alliance, and he has been a guest on our show previously. Uh, Caleb, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Um, let's chat a little bit. Today we we got onto this topic from one of our listeners, and I always like when I hear from listeners because they usually have good ideas for shows. And this one was to talk a little bit about anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder. But let's start, let's talk about you first. What is a neuropsychologist? What do you do? And how, what angle do you come into this situation, into the whole medical milieu? How do you fit in? Yeah, so clinical neuropsychology is a subspecialty of the field of clinical psychology. And uh, a neuropsychologist is uh, most interested in understanding how the functioning of the brain or the dysfunction of the brain is impacting a person's behavior. And so as it relates to uh, a, a situation such as anxiety, um, what we find is that uh, folks are very frequently referred to uh, us as neuropsychologists with concerns of maybe memory problems. There's been difficulty in attention 
processing speed, um, whatever the case. And so these folks will come in and as a part of the differential diagnosis, since you know the brain is the seat of all thinking and all, uh, all being, but it's also the seat of all emotional experience, as a part of our evaluations, we will be looking at cognition, we look at a, you know memory, attention, but then we also uh, look at uh, symptoms related to mood disorders, anxiety, depression, and these sorts of things. And so frequently that would be the way a neuropsychologist would be drawn into one of these um, differential questions. So somebody comes in to see you, what do you do? What, what, what is their experience like when they come to Claris Health Alliance to see you? Well, as a neuropsychologist, one of the first things that I do when I sit down with folks is I want to understand uh, in their own words what is going on. What is the problem? I have the medical records. I've read that. I, I know what their physician is saying, but I really want to know what they are feeling and what they're experiencing. So we often ask them to bring in uh, maybe a friend or a family member who can also provide a perspective. And for the first part of the session, uh, what we do is we spend about an hour, maybe an hour and 15 minutes, just really talking about what the issues are, what are the problems. And, and then from there, what we would do is we would select the different tests that we want to use, that we want to investigate further the problems, um, and then we'll administer those tests. And those tests sometimes take, you know, two, three, sometimes all the way up to five hours. Um, but then once we've completed that, the person heads out the door, they get to enjoy the rest of their day, and then the work really starts for us. When we score everything up, we use normative data so that we are looking at uh, similar age, education, um, uh, considerations for each person. Um, and then we will be writing the report that will be describing, um, based on the data, based on everything that we've brought together, what's going on for this person. Now, once we've done all of that, we bring them back. Uh, often it's you know a couple weeks later. And we sit down and we really want to make sure that each person leaves that second appointment having a good grasp on what the issues are as, as we see them and as we have discovered. Um, uh, here's the beauty of what you do from as a clinician is when I send someone to your office, I get an objective evaluation. So, so often people will come to a neurologist with subjective complaints, primarily uh, and often it's young people, I think I have dementia. I can't remember where I put things. I can't remember people's names. And it's disconcerting for a patient. And when I examine them, other than any gross abnormality, and often that's not the case that I find anything, and they'll have, we'll do imaging of the brain, and that'll be normal, I could send them for a neuropsychometric evaluation and get numbers, get data that point us in a direction of, is this dementia? Is this forgetfulness? Is this normal for someone's age? Um, so I think people need to understand that uh, neuropsychology is, is an important part of what we do as neurologists and especially when it comes to cognition. But, but today we want to talk about anxiety. Um, what do we know about anxiety? So what we know about anxiety is that it's probably one of the most pure human experiences that we have. There's many human experiences, but anxiety is something that has been around for a very long time. In fact, if we go back a thousand years, two thousand years, anxiety probably was part of the factor that kept folks living so that we could be here today. Uh, so if you think of somebody maybe lying in a cave at night sleeping, everyone else is sound asleep, and the person who tends to have a bit of an anxiety reaction hears a noise and they jump up and flee, they may live. 
The problem that we have is that those sort of primitive reactions are still in our brain. They're deep in the deep structures of our brain. But uh, there can be times where there can be, um, for whatever reason, maybe there was a traumatic situation or um, perhaps uh, the person just tends to have a bit of an anxiety-driven uh, life uh, where those elements uh, can, can really get triggered. And perhaps the individual um, uh, experiences the, whatever is happening in the moment as if they were one of those folks in the cave. When in fact, these days, that sort of reaction or that sort of um, uh, interaction with uh, how they're feeling is not that functional. And so that's one of the things that we look at as we're working with folks. It's such a broad diagnosis. Is Do you think there's anybody who has not experienced anxiety in their lives? I would expect there probably are a few people. Um, I... Most people that I speak with, uh, if I uh, talk with them and we kind of n- get down deep, you know, I think everybody has uh, some sort of anxiety. Most people would. It's a really continuum here, right? At, at some point, you had to be anxious about something. Uh, wedding day, I mean, uh, birth of a child. I mean, uh, these are anxiety-provoking experiences. So it's a normal experience. At Absolutely. What, so at what point does it become abnormal? So we think of anxiety as falling on a continuum. On the one end of the continuum is that everyday anxiety that a person may have. In fact, we have research that would show that there is an optimal level of anxiety that will increase and improve a person's performance, right? Um, but then it, uh, you can't say that, well, more anxiety makes you better, and even more anxiety will make you even better at what you do. Yeah, see, I've There's not found point. one medical condition. So people always come in and tell me, whenever I'm anxious, it gets worse. I haven't found any medical condition that got better with anxiety, right. like migraine, right. tremor, uh, anything, heartburn. Uh, none of it gets better. But performance can get better. It, well, it can at an optimal level. What we know is that once anxiety exceeds or hits a threshold um, uh, where it, it, it goes past that uh, point where it is helpful, there's actually a, st- a steep drop-off of its functionality. In fact, it can be- become a very dysfunctional experience for people. And so the, the fascinating thing about anxiety is that um, it is a very biological experience. It is a brain-based experience, uh, but, but it also is a psychological experience. Those two interact on each other and, and cause these sorts of thoughts, these, these intrusive experiences. We're chatting with Dr. Caleb Peck today about anxiety. We're going to get into this a little bit more. We're going to talk a little bit about phobias, um, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder that we hear more and more about, especially in veterans, and and some of the approaches to making an accurate diagnosis and how to seek out treatment. Uh, so important topics. The phone numbers here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You can also reach me live on the show by emailing to info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and my guest today is Dr. Caleb Peck. Those are the sounds of Barry Manilow, who will be at the Mohegan Sun July 10th. So uh, Tuesday, uh, Barry Manilow will be there. So again, get over to Mohegan Sun when you can. 
Uh, Caleb, we were talking about anxiety and the broad spectrum or continuum of the diagnosis. Um, so where do where does PTSD fit into this? You know, it's it's really interesting because up until probably just a couple of years ago, um, uh, PTSD and anxiety uh, were put into the same broad category in the DSM, which is the the the, the manual that we use uh, in terms of diagnosing officially uh, various uh, mental disorders. And uh, recently, they've actually separated the two. And so anxiety disorders uh, kind of stands alone. And then uh, disorders of uh, like stress is another uh, diagnose, diagnostic category. Um, and so, but, but the two are very much related. And I think that when we look at the neuroanatomical level, of um, what is happening in these two situations, um, on these two diagnoses, it's uh, there. There are similarities there. Are people anatomically more prone to one or the other? Uh, you know, that's a great question. Um, I, I do think that um, from a when we look at the incident rate, if you will, um, folks do tend to have uh, as a population. I think there are higher levels in the population for anxiety than there is for PS, PTSD. Um, I, I think that each person comes to the table with uh, their own vulnerabilities, some of that being, you know, what was their upbringing like? Frankly, what, what were the, the different components that mom and dad gave them from a biological standpoint? And then how have things gone in their life? And so uh, those different components come together to create perhaps the perfect storm, if you will, uh, that can create uh, or uh, generate uh, anxiety disorder or PTSD, depending on the situation. Um, Caleb, I just, let's try and grab some of these questions uh, people have been hanging on for. Donna from Manchester, you're on the line. Oh, good morning, Dr. Oh. Uh, Alessi and Dr. Peck. I do have a question about anxiety, which I have suffered from from the time I was a very, very little girl. And just um, because of uh, mother and father problems at a very, very young age. And my question is, um, I have been on Valium for this anxiety condition for many, many years, and I don't take it, I only take it at night because that's when I have my problems. But I, it uh, doesn't seem, you know, to really help anymore. And I, besides the alternative, you know, with yoga or meditation, which I have done, are there newer and better drug alternatives to help that nighttime anxiety that is what I experienced as a young child to get me through the night and be able to sleep? Uh, that's so interesting. Um, I, you know, I would recommend consulting with your, your primary care physician um, in this regard. Uh, you know, okay. Valium and diazepam has been really the the anchor of of kind of treating with anxiety but in many cases now there are newer drugs um some that were really designed for depression but take the edge off of anxiety and uh work even better and again taken at night so there are other medications out there that I would recommend exploring with your primary care physician and and looking into those 
more than anything. But uh, uh, definitely, and and I'm glad you brought up the idea of Valium because it's such an old drug and people, you know, it it has this bad connotation, but uh, it's actually a very effective medication. It is. All right. Okay. It doesn't. Well, so, yeah. Go ahead. I Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you well, for calling. Thank you. I appreciate oh. your answer, and I will do that. Thank you. Bye. Next up, we have Nicholas. Nicholas, you're the reason we're here today. Yeah, I bet. Okay. So, what's as your question for Dr. Peck? As a Vietnam veteran and long-term PTSD, anxiety disorder, all the above, um, Two things. Would you kindly go out of your way to stress that PTSD is a physical, a psychic injury, not a mental disease? Secondly, could you please comment on the use of alprazolam, um, uh, think clonopin, things of that sort, with people, older people in their now 70s, like Vietnam vets, who are take both in the relationship between that and uh, premature, uh, I don't want to say Alzheimer's, but some form of dementia or organicity. Absolutely. So let's split this one up. Uh, I'll let you talk about the fact that it is, um, uh, the, how it's classified, for for lack of a better term, Caleb. And then I'll jump in about the medication. Uh, you know, I, I think it's an important distinction that you're making here. And, you know, if we look back at the history of PTSD, we go all the way back to the 1800s. What we see is it was first described as nostalgia, this this uh, problem uh, with uh, becoming preoccupied with something that occurred. If we go all the way to the 1900s, World War One, it was described as shell shock. Once we get to the 1940s, it was described as this combat stress reaction, but there was always this sense that it was some sort of problem with the individual's constitution that they could not handle what was going on, whereas other people could. Now, when we hit the 1950s, what we see is that uh, it, it becomes described more as a gross stress reaction, and that is where the the, the concept and the the understanding of what PTSD is uh, really had probably its infancy. Uh, when it when it comes to um, understanding what is going on in the condition, um, I, I think the the nuance that you're getting at is that we don't describe it and we don't understand it as being a problem of the, a person's individual mental health and being unable to actually handle stress. We we understand it to be a a, a brain reaction to a traumatic event. Is that getting at what you were trying to uh, communicate? Does that, that answer your question, Nicholas? In part, but the way um, physicians, doctors, psychiatrists have explained it to me was that the body takes such a physical trauma observing very horrible catastrophes that it does have an effect on specific areas of the brain. And there's a nexus between both. It's like a a physiological, psychological disturbance of sorts that takes a long time to be corrected, if ever. Yeah, and and I think the point being that it's hard to localize that within the brain because the brain, um, there are so many different parts that interact in terms of responding to a situation. So I certainly understand what they're trying to communicate, um, but obviously it is a response um, to a situation. Uh, Getting on to your, your issue about the medication, and right. differentiating with dementia. Uh, so PTSD is not dementia. 
and people have to understand that. Uh, we use a lot of different medications for post-traumatic stress disorder, much like we use medication to treat anxiety um, in order to calm that overreaction or that response, that irritability within the brain. So we're using medications that coincidentally we also use for epilepsy, uh, oddly enough. Drugs like clonopin, drugs like gabapentin, Depakote. Um, these are drugs that were originally designed for people who had seizures and epilepsy that help us work with people with PTSD. But uh, there is no clear link that someone with PTSD is more prone to becoming demented uh, and okay. having an overt Alzheimer's uh, type of picture. That's one that's really good to hear. Uh, Nicholas, thank you for the idea for the show. Thank you. All right. Take care. Uh, we're going to take... Uh, Linda's call. Linda's from Vernon, and you have a question about dementia. Well, <clears throat> it's a, it's, I think this might be one of those test questions you get in college. Um, I'm a caregiver, and I'm calling about my mom, who um, who does have dementia. She has depression. She has schizophrenia, and when she was 23, she was in an accident that left her with scar tissue on her forehead. So, in retrospect, I'm pretty sure she probably had a um, traumatic brain injury. And <clears throat> so every night she asks me pretty much every night, are my parents dead? Now my mom's 85. And <clears throat> and uh, she did have issues with her mom in particular when, you know, she was younger. And so my question is for a caregiver, is there anything else I can do other than say yes, you know, they've died, and then try to divert her attention to something else, which what, is typically what, what I do. What a great question. Caleb, what do you recommend for somebody like that? Because I think a lot of people are facing that challenge working with someone with dementia, with these other problems. How, what is the proper way to respond to someone? So I, I think much of this depends on uh, the individual experience and, and how the person reacts. Uh, but generally speaking, when I'm working with a family and, and the person, uh, perhaps the, the client has uh, Alzheimer's disease, a condition in which they, they may not be aware that things have changed, they, they think that everything is okay still, and so they'll ask those sorts of questions um, about deceased relatives and the such. One of the things that I will encourage people is, you know, there, there's not a sense at one point where you're going to teach them that, uh, that whatever they're asking about has occurred or not. If, if you, if, I think that it can be helpful to, at just as you were doing, explain gently what the situation is and then sort of divert attention. Uh, there'll yeah. be times where people will um, say, well, you know, my... My mother gets really caught on uh, this issue, and I really feel like I need to make sure she knows that's not right. And and I'll always encourage them. You know, I, I think that um, that moving more towards allowing some of those thoughts to be there, it's okay if they're there as long as they're not causing harm. And uh, and then diverting attention, I think, is a, is a good way to approach that. Okay, well, and I appreciate that. That has been my strategy. I realize you cannot argue or change her mind right. so i don't try to do that anymore Great. years ago yeah. years ago yeah. but i learned you just can't do that and uh, um but i just it's just you know difficult to hear her say the same thing over and over and um it is it is yeah. and, and and make sure you have support and a support system because it's important for caregivers um especially dealing with patients with dementia yeah 
All right. Linda, thank you for the thank call. You. We appreciate Thanks it. Thank you so much. Okay. We're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Caleb Peck. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. This is our final segment. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and my guest today has been Dr. Caleb Peck. And we're chatting about neuropsychology and the treatment and diagnosis primarily of anxiety. Uh, Dr. Peck is at Claris Health Alliance. There are two locations, 10 North Main Street here in West Hartford at 860-889-7274. And he has another location in Norwich, Connecticut at 40 Connecticut Avenue. It's the same phone number to reach Dr. Peck at 860-889-7274. Caleb, I guess some of the questions that have been coming up really deal with kind of the differential diagnosis. Are we talking, a lot of people think and, and panic that they have dementia, they have Alzheimer's disease, can't remember. And a lot of times it is anxiety. So can you talk a little bit about how you differentiate between the two and, and something some of our listeners may want to think about? Absolutely. Um, so as we mentioned earlier, as a neuropsychologist, um, what I do is I work with folks in uh, identifying and uh, determining what the source of their uh, concerns and complaints are. I don't do any treatment with, with folks. I send them to either someone in the practice or out in the area to do psychotherapies. Um, but when they come to me, uh, it's it's interesting because it's not uncommon for me to see someone who may be in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and uh, they perhaps were a caregiver with, uh, with a parent who had developed Alzheimer's disease or something else, and they saw this decline. They saw the losing track of things. They saw kind of misplacing items, forgetfulness. And, uh, and what they come in and saying is, you know, I know there can be a family history here. I know that can impact a person's risk. I'm concerned because I'm seeing I'm having memory problems. You know, my kids are saying, hey, mom, you know, uh, what's going on with, you know, the, you know, our, our ride to this ball game or what have you. And, and the, the client or the patient has no idea what they're talking about. And the kids say, Look, we, we've said this like three times, and it's very concerning for people. You know, I would be concerned about that as well. So these folks come in, and we sit down, and we do the, uh, do the interview. And during that time, as I mentioned earlier, that's where we're re really gathering the, the information. But it is subjective um, at that time, and that's an important piece, um, you know, not to denigrate because it's subjective. But once we get into the neuropsychological exam where we are able to take cognitive aspects and emotional functioning and we convert those into uh, some sort of objective score where we can compare that individual to other individuals the same uh, age education um, what we find it's very interesting uh, is that a good number of these folks actually when i look at their memory i look at their attention their processing speed they're great sometimes they're better than great um, but but when we look closely at um, uh, elements related to psychological functioning, that's where we see the problems. And these folks have really high anxiety. Sometimes they don't even have any awareness of the fact that anxiety is part of what's going on for them. How much does depression play a role in this? Uh, I think depression plays a significant role. Um, but I think the interesting thing about depression is – I. at least this is my observation – I think people are more familiar with what it looks like. I think people will say, well, I feel sad. 
or I don't really want to, you know, get up during the day, or um, I'm sleeping more, I'm sleeping, I'm sleeping less. Um, the interesting thing about anxiety is that uh, I feel as if there's a large number of folks who come in who um, really have very little awareness, but it ends up being the main component of, of what is disrupting their life, and it's disrupting their attention, it's disrupting their memory. And, and frankly, that's because of where, um, uh, where these, these, uh, the amygdala, the center for um, activation, it's connected to uh, structures that are involved in learning and memory. I guess, you know, some of the overlap I see is, you know, we always ask patients, you know, are you having crying spells? Are you having a sleep disorder? Have you uh, found that, uh, you know, you're not eating well? or losing your appetite. But again, when I look at those, probably other than the crying spells, a sleep disorder, especially insomnia, and an eating disorder can certainly overlap with anxiety. Well, certainly. So how is it more the sadness, those tearful episodes that differentiate the two? Well, I think that um, when I'm thinking about um, the differentiation between depression and anxiety, uh, I am looking for, uh, is a person have low energy levels? Um, uh, do, do they seem to look down on themselves? Uh, do they have a lot of uh, negative self-talk? Um, and do they have irritability? Um, and, but there can be a good amount of overlap between depression and anxiety and how it can look or how it can feel. Um, I, I think that classically we might say that depression is uh, thinking about the past and becoming sort of uh, ruminating on that, whereas Absolutely. anxiety tends to have more of a future. Uh, you know, there's the past is a huge piece of it, but I'm concerned about what's happening now and what's going to happen later today. Yeah, and people with insomnia, it's interesting. I don't think there are any good thoughts at 2 in the morning. Um, you know, in, invariably, it's somebody who has a headache, it's a brain tumor at 2 in the morning until proven otherwise. Uh, so I think that Again, those things have to be resolved to some degree. Uh, I want to thank you. Thank you for coming and spending time with us today. Uh, and I hope we'll be able to get you back in the future to talk a little bit more about um, neuropsychology and, and the approach um, to people with psychological challenges. Thanks again, Caleb. Thank you so much. And that's Dr. Caleb Peck. You can contact Dr. Peck at 860-889-7274. Uh, I want to uh, especially thank Mike Olko. Mike, he's on the board today. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Uh, next week on Healthy Rounds, we're planning another exciting live show, so we'll be able to take questions. Uh, next up on WTIC is going to be Garden Talk with Len. Please remember to help save lives by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. You can do that today by going to registerme.org. It's so important at this time of year. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi for Healthy Rounds, wishing you a very pleasant weekend. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Covaris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.